Welcome everyone to episode 23 of Curseland, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. As always, I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. Our first story this week comes from LitHub.com. This story is entitled Wolf in the Basement, and it's written by Aurelie Sheehan. When I was young, we kept a wolf in the basement. It was a compromise, where one of my parents wanted no wolf, and the other wanted the wolf in the living room, so together they came up with this solution. The wolf lived six steps down from the rest of us, and when we let him out, it was from the very back door, the one that faced the forest. At first, I did not like the wolf. I was a cat person, and we already had a cat, a long-haired, skinny thing, at times willing to let you touch her. When I did pet Minerva, she gave me a look like, this is nice-ish, probably more so for you than me. I twirled my fingers under her creamy chin, ran them down her gray back. So, would the wolf eat my cat? If the door unlatched and what was upstairs went downstairs, or vice versa, We found the wolf one afternoon on the grounds of an old mansion where we'd gone for a book sale, proceeds of which would go to my mother's alma mater. We went to this every year, filling boxes with volumes that cost dimes or quarters. Neither of my parents was profligate, so the outing always had the feeling of splendor. In the capacious blank rooms, winding lines of books, whole paragraphs of them, Our boxes were already in the back of the car, and my mother stood off to the side, having a smoke, her arms in an L like a military hand signal, cigarette wavering in the vicinity of her mouth. She paused, sightline going from middle distance to zoned in. Larry? Dad was still arranging the boxes for transport, I guess, because he was at this point half tumbled into the back of the car. He got up, hit his head on the car roof, pushed the hatch door down with a solid thwack, What? No answer, but my mother's aura of concentration compelled him to walk over to where she stood. I followed, as did my brother, walking like a clown, as per usual. The four of us stared past a small precipice at the wolf, sitting forlornly near a pine tree where he might have been viewing the book fair, but was now, most definitely, gazing at us. He got up, limped two steps, and sat down again all the while keeping up his plaintive look. Wow, a wolf, I said. A wolf, mommy, said my brother. It looks injured, muttered my father. Let's go see if we can help, said my mother, a maniacal gleam in her eye. She tossed the cigarette. We lived in a town well known for its crafty, can-do spirit. It was a survivalist town, filled with melancholy people, and the sky above was mostly white. In that town and in those years, I saw the sky as a sequence of key shapes. This key, that key, skeleton keys, medeco keys, sometimes jumbles, sometimes singular. It was all very intricate, I felt, in my prolonged, or even endless, it can seem now, study. However, none of us really did have the key, so to speak, or the keys were always soft and amorphous and not ready for one little hole or secret. 
We labored along in our crafty survivalist lives, performing the act of a family. It wasn't just an act, of course not. We were a family. And yet, as with every family, while there was a tension or magnetic force keeping us close, there was an equal yearning or leaning, like a Shetland pony on a rope, away from the centripetal field. I was in charge of bringing the wolf his vittles. I used a plastic measuring cup to get his portion out of the garbage can where we ended up keeping the dog food, a receptacle until recently used for near-the-laundry trash, fluffs of dryer lint mostly, carrying it downstairs into the dark, wolf-bearing basement. We had tried storing the food in the basement, but he'd handily knocked over the can and gorged himself. I turned on the light at the top of the stairs. We kept the wolf in the dark, although during the day some light did come in the back door. And of course, when my father took him jogging, he saw the light. Oh, when my mother, alone in the house, let him out at twelve and three into the backyard. We had called our vet soon after we first lured him into our hatchback, a wolf among the books. But our vet, a sanctimonious Catholic, had cautioned us that wolves were illegal, and so if he really were a wolf, we'd need to turn him in. Turn him in to what, or whom? In any case, he himself, God-fearing, etc., refused to treat the wolf. My mother and father did agree at that moment on the assholeness of that veterinarian. We ended up using a sketchy vet from Norwalk. He needed the work. I flipped the light switch, and this is what I saw. The washer and dryer, a linen chest, an old dresser filled with art and random objects, the pool filter and pump, stored patio furniture, an ancient gray-green carpet. In the middle of the carpet lay Wolfie, his head angled tragically on his now-heeled front paw. He jumped up and stood whenever I appeared, half embarrassed, it seemed, to be caught unaware or in sorrow. Oh, Wolfie, but ours was a stoic town, and we envisioned ourselves as stoic people. I put the bowl down and watched expressionlessly as he padded toward the food. He was small for a wolf, and even weeks after his capture, he still had a bit of a limp. He was a black wolf, which is unusual, I've been told. Perhaps he was a Russian wolf. He would have looked good in the snow, in a snowy field. I went back upstairs to the crunch of vittles. One day, about four months later, after school ended anyway, because I was waking up late, the sky a brighter white than on school mornings, I looked out the window and saw Wolfie and Minerva both free in the yard. The wolf and the cat were staring at each other. Wolfie lunged, his body blurring into an italic, and Minerva lunged too, becoming more of a dash. Within two seconds, Wolfie was barking at the chain-link fence, and Minerva stood on the other side, tail bristled out, looking at him with scandal and dull horror. Some mornings I watched as my father and Wolfie walked down the driveway on their way out for a run, my father's bright blue running shorts like an Olympic sprinter's, and Wolfie with his patient padding paws, and the white sky overhead, and the crunch of gravel. My father would soon be gone, but for what seemed like forever, he was right there, in the driveway, or in the kitchen, or in his office, also in the basement, a small room off the central area. Both parents gave up smoking, and I started smoking. At Thanksgiving, we set aside some dark meat for the wolf, 
Plans were hatched, grades were dispensed, fights were had up and downstairs. My brother became excellent at sports. We lost some, but not all of our relatives. On the last day, my father ran with the wolf. It was an early summer evening. I turned away from the window and sat on my bed. My room was a box lined with Laura Ashley wallpaper and decorated with one peacock feather. Minerva declined my invitation to be petted. My mother was downstairs doing something inscrutable. My brother was at baseball practice. We all escaped that town eventually, even Wolfie. Still, his shape remains with me. His shape like a shadow or an outline or someone's scribble. I remember his grieving face when we first saw him, sitting at the edge of the field by the old mansion, with all the people buying books very near, getting back into their Datsuns and Peugeot wagons and the tranquil way he let us take him. Meaning, said the sketchy Norwalk vet, that he was very under the weather indeed. He got better and better in our basement, and as he got better he must have realized where he was, didn't he? I remember bringing him his portion of food and I remember his moments of freedom, his mysterious runs with my father, the foreshortened hunt involving Minerva or the occasional squirrel. Some days I'd see him padding around the edge of the yard along the chain-link fence. Then he'd lie down, staring with his black eyes and his black face under the white sky. I was growing up, I guess. So was my brother. In the afternoons, I sat on the stairs between the first floor where Minerva lay unmolested and the basement where Wolfie slept close to the door. His fur did not shine. Some hours, he slept with his eyes open. The light from the door came in brief streaks and squares, easily dissuaded. Darkness was a dust storm to make our way through, a forest road to run down. In 1848, the importation of camels for military purposes in the Southwest was suggested to the War Department by Henry Wayne, a quartermaster major. Two years later, Secretary of War and Mississippi Senator Jefferson Davis tried to persuade the Senate to look into the use of camels for the U.S. Army. From LegendsOfAmerica.com, a story by Kathy Weiser. Ghost Camels in the American Southwest During this time period, the Southwest Territory of the United States was greatly expanding, and it was thought that camels could be used to carry at least twice the amount of weight as horses or mules, and might also be used in tracking and pursuing Indians, as they could travel without water or rest for much longer than horses. It was also suggested that the camels might carry the mail and that fast camel passenger trains might be developed to run from Missouri River points to the Pacific coast. Initially, the senators voted the idea down, but after California newspapers began to promote the idea, they finally agreed in 1854, passing a bill to appropriate $30,000 for the camel experiment. Some 72 camels arrived in the country in the early part of 1857 and were put to work carrying supplies in the southwest. However, though the camels proved to be well-suited to travel through the region, their unpleasant disposition, a habit of frightening horses, and tendency to wander off during the nights made them very unpopular among the soldiers, 
Still, they continued to be used until the Civil War broke out, at which time they were sold at auction or turned loose into the desert. For years afterward, wild camels continued to be spied roaming in the desert, especially in southern Arizona. Along with these real sightings, a number of legends and tales began regarding these ugly beasts of burden. The most popular is the tale of a camel known as the Red Ghost. In 1883, a woman was found trampled to death, and on her body and a nearby bush were clumps of reddish fur. Large hoof prints were found in the area, but locals were perplexed. A short time later, a large animal careened into a tent in which two miners lay sleeping. Though they were unable to identify the beast, again, large hoof prints and tufts of red hair were left behind. After more incidents occurred, the locals finally recognized the large animal as a camel. Soon, people began to report seeing the camel, who one rancher said carried a rider, though the rider appeared to be dead. The next report came from a group of prospectors who saw the camel and, while watching him, spied something fallen from its back. As the beast moved on, the prospectors went to see what had fallen and discovered a human skull. For the next several years, numerous others spied the camel, who by this time had been dubbed the Red Ghost, carrying its headless rider. However, in 1893, when an Arizona farmer found the red camel grazing in his garden, he shot and killed the beast. By this time, the large camel had shaken free of its dead rider, but still bore the saddle and leather straps with which the corpse had been attached. There was much speculation as to who the mysterious dead rider the camel had carried for several years might have been. One tale alleges that the rider was a young soldier who was afraid of the camels and therefore was having much difficulty in learning how to ride them. In order to teach him how, his fellow soldiers tied him to the top of the beast, determined that he would get over his fear. They then hit the camel on the rump, and the beast took off running. Though the soldiers pursued the camel and his rider, the red beast easily outpaced them and escaped into the desert. Neither the camel nor his helpless rider were ever seen again. Though the abandoned beasts of the Camel Corps roamed for decades, they soon disappeared altogether. In 1907, a prospector reported that he had seen two wild camels in Nevada, and other reports continued to come in sporadically. However, in April 1934, the Oakland Tribune reported, The last American camel is dead. The camel, dubbed Topsy, was seen trekking across the desert of Arizona into California. When she made her way to Los Angeles, she was taken to Griffith Park to live. However, sometime later, she became so crippled with the paralysis, the zoo attendants were forced to put her down. Seemingly, all the real army camels have long passed. However, legends continue to abound of people sighting a giant red camel carrying a headless rider in the deserts of Arizona. It sounds as if Red Ghost may very well be living up to his name. Yet another legend of a ghostly camel also persists. This camel belonged to a prospector named Jake, who had purchased three camels from the army at a public auction. Though his camels were every bit as ornery as the soldiers had described them, he spent much time caring for them and had nothing but praise for his beasts of burden. After Jake hit pay dirt, 
he led his gold-laden camels into town to sell his ore. Afterward, he headed to the local saloon to celebrate. Unfortunately, in the crowd was a man named Paul Adams, who listened with much interest to Jake's story of his gold find. When Jake left to return to his mine, he didn't go directly to his claim, knowing that he might be followed. Though he was careful and took a circuitous route, the man named Paul Adams followed him. When Jake encamped for the night, Adams, thinking that he was at the mine's location, murdered him. Trying to protect his owner, one of the camels attacked Adams, and for his efforts was shot by a scoundrel, but not before he had viciously bit him. Adams then began to search in earnest for Jake's mine, until one night the ghost of Jake, riding upon the dead camel, approached his camp and chased the scoundrel all the way into town, straight to the sheriff's office. Frightened beyond belief, Paul Adams then made a full confession. Whether Jake and his loyal camel continue to roam the desert is unknown. A few announcements and reminders. First of all, thank you all again to everybody who's reviewed the show or donated some money. As this show gets more popular, the cost to serve it does escalate from month to month, and your contributions really help. I appreciate it. Also, please continue to spread the word about the show. Leave a review on your platform of choice. Tell your friends to listen. Mention it on Twitter. All of that. Now, a little bit of news about the show. Over the course of the rest of the year, I'm going to be doing some promotional items uh, in the way of merchandise. Nothing currently to announce as far as what this will be, but I do know that the things that I order will be in a very limited run. I'm only one person, and as such, we'll only be able to afford to produce these things at a very small scale. So what I have done is spun up a Curseland mailing list. If you want to get early announcements about this kind of stuff and get access to it first, you're going to want to sign up there. You can do this on the website at curse.land, that forms in the footer of the page, or you can visit gumroad.com slash curseland. Thanks again, you all. Now let's get on with the show. Here's another one from the No Sleep subreddit. This is a story by Life is Strange Me Too, and it is entitled, The Hitchhiker Who Asked Me to Take Her to Hell. What the hell was she doing out here at a time like this? I eased my foot down onto the brake pedal, and the car slowed to a stop. I looked out the window at the woman. She cut a pitiful figure, shoulders slumped, head down. All the while, rain poured down on her heavy in sheets. I rolled down the window. Looking for a ride? I asked. She lifted her head and nodded. I undid my seatbelt with a click, leaned over and opened the passenger side door. She climbed inside and brushed her soaking wet hair out of her face. She was beautiful. Where are you headed? I asked. Oh, she said quietly. To hell, I guess. I laughed at the perceived joke, but my laughter died when I saw the grave expression on her face. Well, I said, I can get you as far as Los Angeles. I guess that's about as close to hell as you can get without dying. Her face eased into a wry smile. Okay, she said. Los Angeles it is. I smiled at her and hit the gas. 
Silence settled over us as we drove, and the rain came down heavier and heavier. Even with the wipers on full speed, it was impossible to see through the endless gray curtain of water. So, what brings you out here in weather like this? I finally said. She looked a bit startled as she stared out the truck's windshield. Oh, she said, I hate the rain. Yeah, I said, it's a good thing I found you when I did. This area is prone to flash floods, you know. A convulsive shiver shook her entire body. I cranked up the heat. Hey, not to sound like a pervert, but shouldn't you get out of those wet clothes? I have some spare dry ones in the back, and I won't watch you change. I promise. Okay, she said. She pulled her coat and shirt off right then before reaching in the back and grabbing an old t-shirt I kept as a spare. Oh my God, I said. Now that her coat was off, I could see her neck. A thick purple bruise encircled it. She looked like she'd been strangled. Are you okay? I asked. Do you need medical attention? Ambulances don't come out here, she said. Same for police. It's too remote. Uh, right, I said. This woman was starting to make me uncomfortable, and our conversation once again faded into silence. It was a few minutes before she spoke again, right as the car was about to crest a large hill. Stop the car, she said. I slowed but didn't stop. What's the matter? I asked. Stop the car. I can't do that, I said. I'm on a tight schedule, you know, and besides, I can't just leave you out here in this weather. She turned to me. The look on her face was totally blank as she seized the wheel and pulled. The truck jerked to the right, and tires squealed as I slammed on the brakes. I jerked the wheel back, but it was no good. The truck slammed into the guardrail, shearing off a post and plunging into slushy mud. God damn it, I yelled. What the hell is wrong with... What the hell? The woman had disappeared. I squinted out the window into the shifting gray canvas of rain. Had she somehow fallen out while the car was skidding? I looked at her seatbelt, still buckled. This was too weird for me. I hit the gas, but the truck's wheels only spun. I was stuck. I pulled out my phone and called the police to let them know where I was, but they said they couldn't reach me until weather conditions improved. I resigned myself to waiting, flipped on the radio, and took a nap. I awoke to a knock on my window. I opened my eyes to see a policeman motioning for me to roll down the window. I obliged. Well, he said in a thick southern drawl, believe it or not, you might just be the luckiest son of a gun on the planet. Excuse me? Come on out. I'll show you. I did as I was told, and the two of us walked to the top of the hill. Lying in the middle of the road below, lodged in a massive swell of mud, was a rock about half the size of my truck. You come over that hill, said the policeman. I reckon you never would have seen it in the rain. It's a lucky thing you lost control when you did. Otherwise, well, he looked at me pointedly. But I didn't lose control, I said. This woman I picked up, a hitchhiker, she jerked the wheel and sent me into the mud. Is that right, he said. Where'd she go? She uh, disappeared. A peculiar expression stole over his face. Remember what she looked like? Uh, yeah, I said. Black hair, blue eyes, and... And what? A bruise around her neck. It was a bad one. The policeman nodded and sighed. Looks like you ran into Maggie. She's the local legend around here. Legend? 
The officer nodded and explained. Apparently, Maggie was a single mother who had locked her daughter in her room in order to keep the girl from running off with an abusive boyfriend. She went off to work and left her daughter, taking the key with her. It rained hard that day, and the house was flooded. The daughter couldn't get out and drowned. Maggie was inconsolable. She hanged herself a week later. Her note said she was going to hell to atone for her sins. But she didn't go to hell. According to the legend, she stayed on earth to atone by saving wayward travelers from the same fate her daughter had suffered. I suppose I might have bumped my head in the crash, that Maggie might have been nothing more than a hallucination, except for one thing. When I went back to my truck, the shirt and jacket she had been wearing were there still, soaking wet, on my passenger seat. I still have them. It wasn't that my grandfather Ben lacked the energy. His friend Diane told me at her kitchen table in Houston one spring morning last year. He was 75, but she'd seen him gardening like a man half his age, swapping out his entire lawn, shirtless, tearing up all that unsuspecting Houston zoysia just days after he'd arrived next door from out east to replace it with imported East Coast St. Augustine. And she'd seen him drinking and sparring over the news of the day with her husband into the wee hours. She knew he'd have the stamina. That wasn't the problem. I don't guess there ever was a safe time for a Jew to visit Saudi, she said. But it seemed like this was the worst time. From Popula.com, a story by Matt Laufer. An American visit to Saudi Arabia, circa 1985. As head of expatriate services for ExxonMobil's Al-Jubal project, a joint venture with the Saudi government established in 1980, my grandfather's wife, Joanne, had made a number of trips to the kingdom for work. She'd so far left her retired writer-producer husband behind. In 1985, Ben decided he'd go. Joanne was 32 years his junior, a woman of 43 in the prime of her career. She was also nearly six feet tall, while he was no more than a few fingers above five feet. He was also a Jew. An atheist, but a Jew nonetheless. In the 1960s and 70s, while Ben was working primarily for NBC, Saudi Arabia had seen intense development, increased secularization, and greater openness to the West. This changed abruptly in 1979, when religiously motivated critics of the monarchy targeted the Grand Mosque and Mecca. Although the attack was carried out by a small party of zealots whose firing of guns in the mosque appalled most Muslims, their demand for less extravagance on the part of the Saudi rulers and for a halt to the cultural inundation of the kingdom by the West nevertheless struck a chord across Saudi Arabia. Religious conservatism was on the rise. By the 1980s, a visible uptick in anti-Semitic literature and the deepened authority of its sponsors in the Arab world began to suggest that anti-Semitism had become an entrenched part of Arab intellectual life. Nevertheless, the United States remained in close cooperation with the Saudi government, and under King Fahd, the kingdom purchased even more and more sophisticated military equipment from the U.S. America and Saudi Arabia also stepped up their decades-old collaboration on oil. 
When President Trump talks about the alliance these days, we have to remember that this relationship began in 1931 with American geologist Carl Twitchell's recommendations, and shortly thereafter a massive infusion of labor and money from the Arabian American Oil Company, which led to the first oil boom in the early 1950s. Aramco was behind much Saudi development in the decades that followed. When the oil embargo of 1973 and then the mosque attack of 1979 threatened to derail U.S.-Saudi collaboration on oil, it was up to the people behind projects like Al Jubail to restore and strengthen the relationship. Ben wasn't unaware of the risk. Shortly before they were scheduled to leave Houston, he knocked on Diane's back door. Okay, I want you to tell me the absolute truth about something, he blurted. I want your promise you'll be completely and bluntly honest, okay? Do I look Jewish? She took a breath. Do I look Gentile? My God, he said, shaking his head. Is it that bad? So she armed him with a Christian hymn. I want you to memorize every word and promise me if you get arrested, you'll start singing it, she said. It goes like this. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. I have a letter that Ben wrote to my mother shortly before the trip to Saudi. They'd been more or less estranged for decades, but when Ben had cheated on his wife, my mother's mother, Hannah, the gulf grew. Apart from a couple of visits so he could attend her wedding or later see me and my brother, their only regular communication was a letter or two each year. My mother shared five of them with me. In the one he wrote her before his trip to Saudi, Ben told her that Exxon would play godfather for him and added that he was really obligated to go. The Saudi Arab government wouldn't give Joanne a visa unless she was accompanied by her husband, he wrote. Why she needed her husband as a chaperone this time and not on previous visits to Saudi, I don't know. But this particular husband was also a Jewish-American journalist who'd spent a good chunk of his career producing radio and television programs exposing anti-Semitism and advocating Jewish causes worldwide. Starting, as far as I can tell, with his work for the Jewish veteran in 1944, he'd scripted and produced and broadcast stories for the Federation of Jewish Philanthropists and the Jewish Theological Seminary, the American Jewish Committee, and the American Jewish Council. More recently, it had been NBC's Frontiers of Faith. They flew to King Khalid International Airport and made their way to Al Jubail on the coast. While in the kingdom, Ben mostly stuck close to Joanne, her Exxon colleagues, and a driver. Like many expats, he drank scotch or homemade wine every night, indoors and under the radar. Outdoors, he took photographs. One day, he was snapping shots of what he believed were nothing more than sand dunes when Saudi police collared him. What interest did he have in military installations? They wanted to know. You'd think a man who'd seen his own father killed in a pogrom by anti-Semitic state agents would have learned caution, particularly in a nation whose ruling class was at the moment hot with anti-Semitism. In one of two albums of memorabilia I inherited after Ben's death some ten years after his Saudi trip, I found two colored drawings he'd made after returning home. Grotesque scenes, exaggerations or outright fictions, I've always assumed, of his encounter with the authorities. They're ridiculous orientalist caricatures and somehow also chilling. In one, a female figure meant to be Joanne is on her knees before an angered, cartoonishly villainous Saudi man pulling film from a camera. She's entreating him with raised arms and wrists shackled. But your honor, we don't do it quite like that in Houston. 
In the other cartoon, a shirtless and bony Ben kneels on the ground with manacled hands behind his back, chained to manacled ankles, his head on the stump of a tree, neck exposed. He's a caricature with an inhumanly narrow head and a giant nose, a wayward soul in the allegorical, stereotypical, beleaguered Jewish body, but he's also clearly my grandfather. The Saudi man from the first sketch grips Ben by the hair with one hand, while in the other he wields aloft a golden scimitar. Before you chop my head off, the cartoon Ben is saying in a cartoon bubble, don't you think we ought to shake hands first? The Wall Street Journal published reports from anonymous sources that the journalist Jamal Khashoggi was tortured in front of Mohammed al-Taibi, Saudi Arabia's consul general, before he was killed. According to Reuters, which cited a Turkish intelligence source, Saud al-Khatani, the top aide for the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, had made a call to the consulate while Khashoggi was held there against his will. Via Skype, Khatani reportedly insulted Khashoggi, who responded in kind. According to the Turkish source, Katani then asked Otaibi and his team to kill the prisoner, saying, bring me the head of the dog. According to several sources, the president of Turkey is in possession of the audio of that Skype call. Khashoggi was still alive, sources have alleged, when Otaibi and his colleagues, while listening to music, cut his body into pieces. There was no attempt to interrogate him, one source said. They had come to kill him. It could be very well that the crown prince had knowledge of this tragic event, Trump said in a statement the other day. Maybe he did, and maybe he didn't. According to Nazif Karaman of the Turkish pro-government newspaper, The Daily Sabah, an audio recording with sound taken from inside the consulate revealed Khashoggi's last words. I'm suffocating. Take this bag off my head. I'm claustrophobic. More recently, various sources reported his last words were, I can't breathe. Examining Ben's artwork again, I wonder how hyperbolic his sketches are, how much they amplify the danger he was in, how much they're played for laughs, whether they conceal in their corny cartoonishness real anxiety he felt in the moment, or past trauma that the experience dredged up, whether from his childhood in war-torn Latvia, or from the accident that took his mother's life, or the pogrom that took his father's. Ben tried explaining what he thought he'd been capturing on film, sand dunes, not some military base, while Joanne and his driver, in all their wisdom, managed to switch the active film with a new role. In a photograph from the trip, Ben stands in a pair of brown and blue check slacks and a midnight blue collared shirt with the bottom button undone. Next to him is Joanne, a full head taller, and next to her a young man with a huge smile wearing traditional Saudi garb white, long-sleeve, ankle-length thob, red and white checked headdress. Ben has cocked his huge left hand at his temple in a strange palm-forward salute whose meaning I can only guess. I wonder if the photo isn't somehow satirical, taken after his brush with authorities. Hail to the kingdom. Joanne has slipped her arm into Ben's and is holding him above the wrist, gently but steadily. Considering the climate there, I got off rather easy, he'd write my mother upon his return. No jail sentence, no fine, no deportation proceedings. They were just intent on confiscating my film. That concludes episode 23 of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback, please email feedback at curse.land. 
You can also find me on Twitter at Curseland. So feel free to message me on there if you'd prefer. Till next time, I'll talk to y'all later.